0: Yes, now to someone with the courage to imagine, then assemble, this work of sweeping economic history which charts the epic span of the so-called, as he says, long 20th century. Brad DeLong chooses 1870 as his big anchor date when the Western world is moving rapidly towards life-changing technological advances like household phones, electricity, flushing toilets. A time when technology finally outran population growth and moved so many of our forebears from agricultural to urban lives. The book is titled Slouching Towards Utopia. It's gaining praise from all the right critics. It's rising up the bestseller charts in the US. Its author is very well known for his consistent blogging going back to the 90s, even when he worked in government with Bill Clinton. Brad DeLong is also a macroeconomist at the University of California, Berkeley, and he joined me earlier. Hello.
1: Thank you very much for asking me. You know, every opportunity well, look, it... to get my voice in front of people so I can sell my book is greatly appreciated right now. Yeah. <gasps>
0: Well, by the sound of the reception, you don't need a lot of extra help. But look, the subject of your book is the time period 1870 to 2010, which you have chosen to call the long 20th century. Now, various people have sort of um, characterised the 20th century, as you know, in different ways. Talk me through how you arrived at this time frame, please.
1: Well, I mean, first, you've got to recognise that Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the Western United States are different because they were rich even before 1870. Simply so many resources and so few people. But for the overwhelming bulk of the world, before 1870, there was absolutely no chance that humanity would ever be able to bake a sufficiently large economic pie for everyone to potentially have enough. And after 1870, the value of the technology that humans could deploy in the world economy, it doubled every 30 years. And that meant the possibility of an economy in which you could think that someday there would be a large enough pie for everyone to have enough, that that came into view. It's the arrival of that vision that changed a huge number of things and made history after 1870 very different from history before.
0: Yes, you talk about the sort of watershed crossing events of around 1870. As you said, the triple emergence of globalisation, the industrial research laboratory and and the modern corporation which ushered in these huge changes. So talk about that that conjunction if you would please.
1: Well, you know, there's been humans have been invented for a long time that say ever since the invention of agriculture and then the discovery that if you let your barley porridge get rotten in the right way, it turned into beer. But since 1870, we've had as much technological progress in 150 years as they had in the entire span, from minus 6,000 all the way up to 1870. And the difference? Well, lots of things had to happen in order for our rate of technological progress to be so fast. But the last three things to fall into place were indeed globalization to make it immensely profitable to figure out how to develop and deploy new technology. Um, the modern corporation to rationalize and routinize such deployment that, you know, you couldn't just deploy it in one factory. You could deploy it everywhere. The corporation could have a scope to do so. And the industrial research lab to rationalize and routinize, you know, the process of invention. And for this, I go through the life story of Nikola Tesla, who in any situation other than a well-managed industrial research lab created by um, George Westinghouse would have been absolutely useless in terms terms of doing anything other than having wonderful ideas, 10 of which were completely unworkable. But in the Westinghouse Industrial Research Lab, the one idea in 10 that Tesla had that was actually workable could be developed, and then the Westinghouse Corporation could build it out and build up the electricity grid.
0: The point is that these, this confluence then outran population growth and th- then it produced... Uh, the humans started saying, ''Oh, our, our children are going to live, so we'll have less of them.'' Humans became rich enough and and long lived enough that limiting fertility became a desirable option, with all that then followed.
1: What was the story about Queen Anne Stuart of Great Britain? Right? Seventeen pregnancies and yet zero children who outlived her, and you know her feeling that she had to be a baby machine because you know the Stuart dynasty really needed an heir and a male heir. Well, at least that's what I remember from the movie The Favor. And, you know, Anne Stewart, Queen, was had a really lousy life and was dealt a very bad hand. But, you know, your typical woman back before 1870, Um, figure that if you're going to have about two children survive you, um, well, then you kind of have to have three or four reach the age of five, which means six or seven live births, which means... You know, nine or so pregnancies, and you know, nine times nine months—that six and a half years pregnant, and then about another fourteen years breastfeeding. You know, twenty years, um, eating for two, simply to try to get, simply to try to get surviving descendants. You know, for yourself like a risk and management one strategy, of surviving isn't Surviving descendants had, yeah, one of them had better be a son. Because if you were a woman who reached 50 and if your husband died and then you had no surviving sons, you kind of had very little in the way of options. So Look,
0: I'm, I'm going to read out a few of the statistics that you do assemble. Um, this second industrial revolution, you, you really talk about it, um, this early period. 4% of uh, Americans had flush toilets at home in 1870. 20% had them in 1920. in 1950, 96% in 1970, (laughs) Um, you have uh, 18% of Americans had electric power in 1913, 94% had it by 1950. I mean, these are just staggering. I mean, I've I've heard them before, but they still surprised me. what was the social impact of this? How has, does it play into your thesis? Well,
1: you know, um, great the technology is doubling in value every generation, which means immense wealth. But as economist Joseph Schumpeter said, you know, that technology is not only creation, it's creative destruction. You know, that as technology rockets forward, um, you know, entire sectors, entire industries... Entire occupations, livelihoods, communities, they'll simply dry up and blow away because they depended on last generation's technology being good enough to make your living, and it no longer is. And so governments are faced with the, both with the fact that society is rapidly becoming immensely wealthy, um, but also that it's extraordinarily cruel to a substantial chunk of the population that finds itself on the wrong side of technological progress or globalization or you know labor force, economization, or whatever. And it's that enormous um, struggle, the fact that governments over and over again have to figure out how to try to manage the process of economic growth and change and creative destruction, and how having managed it once, they don't then get to sit back. Um, that new technologies come along in the next generation and they have to figure out how to manage it all again. So that is underneath a huge amount of the history of the long 20th century.
0: And the whole business of uh, creating fairness and so on, yes. Uh, I mean, maybe this uh, that answers the question I was going to pose because you do question this utopia because it did look like a utopia was coming. Uh, maybe, uh, well, I wonder... You, you reflect on the fact that it didn't yield, and people like John Maynard Keynes spoke about this too very strongly. Um, is this where the name of the book comes into play, Slouching Towards Utopia?
1: It is, it is. But here I'm stealing from William Butler Yeats and his post-World War I poem, The Second Comic. Um, because when you steal, why not steal from the best? And we all know that <laughs> Irish poets are the best, and Yeats is the best of the best. Yeah, I mean, the point is that from 1870 on, Humanity was really solving the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie and solving it incredibly rapidly. But somehow, the problems of slicing and tasting the pie, you know, the problems that people thought would be easy once you'd solved the problem of baking, the problems of equitably distributing our wealth and then utilizing it to make us. Um, live lives in which we feel safe and secure and are healthy and happy. Those continue to absolutely flummox
0: us. You know, it, it it is interesting. I heard a webinar the other day just reminding me that until I think after World War II, infectious diseases killed people at a far greater rate than other issues. And now it's chronic diseases that, that all the, the best public health uh, prognostication is about, you know, that it's trying. So we've got a sort of a new challenge of managing in chronic diseases, because infectious diseases have... I don't mean completely, especially not since COVID, but, you know, by and large, that has been uh, solved to some extent. Now, it's something that certainly had escaped me, I'd have just taken it into my... I, ju- I just expect it to be there and probably are um, critical if, if it doesn't emerge. So this is what I think you're getting at.
1: Yeah, you know, that before... World War II, there were really no antibiotics. And before 1900 or so, humanity was sufficiently poor that people were sufficiently malnourished you know, that your immune system was like, highly likely to be compromised. Right? Infant mortality rates up to 50%. Um, you know, that of the queens of England from the conquest, the Norman conquest until Queen Victoria, about one in seven died in childbed. And these were women who a great deal of social power was spent trying to keep alive and healthy and childbearing, And yet one in seven did not manage to make it through, right um, all of their pregnancies um, alive. You know, that the thing about history in the past, before the twentieth century, is that you know people died. People died all the time. You know, anyone could drop dead at any moment in less than a week from an infectious fever or any of a large number of other things you know Nathan Mayer Rothschild was the richest man in the world in the first half of the 19th century Nathan Mayer Rothschild died of an infected abscess in his arm that they had no idea how to treat well, we probably wouldn't get to see anything, anyone more than an orderly if we showed up with that.
0: So I wonder what... So, yes, so we take in very quickly and effortlessly these changes that you're saying were part of this amazing century. I mean, one Australian economist, Peter Martin, in a review of your book, uh, summarised the long 20th century as, "quotes an ever-shifting battle between those who wanted the market to determine the distribution of wealth, believing it was the best way to grow the pie, against those who who believed such unfairness wasn't what they signed up for do you does that accord with you do you think that is still going to govern us in in the next um, 10 years say well you know it
1: has for the past 150 years right that you have, that you have technology advancing and the question is how do you pay for its further advance and then how do you deploy it out of the world um and it was austrian economist friedrich von hayek who in some respects was an absolute genius who said trust the market Right. That a bureaucracy turns people into robots who are simply following a rule book written down by a few and a command and control, a centrally planned thing, simply as people following commands given by someone at the center at the top who actually has no idea of what's going on in the ground. You know, but if you give people property, if you give people authority to commit resources, and if you have a market so that they can then sell what they produce if they do a good job of producing you know, you crowdsource the solution to the problem of how How do we get all get rich by being as productive as possible? And so that,
0: whereas Keynes talked about market failure,
1: yeah, oh yeah, yeah. enormous amounts of market failure. But you know, Hayek said this is what we have to do if we want to realize the benefits of technology. And Hayek went on to say, and this is unfair but tough it was Karl Polanyi and others who pointed out that people simply will not stand for being told that they have no rights unless they have property. Um, hmm. That you tell people that the world is run by the rich and only by the rich, and no one else has a voice, and you're going to get some kind of revolt, some kind of revolution, some kind of rebellion. Um, and so Hayek's vision of a extremely rich but unfair world in which the market rules everything is simply not something that any society has ever managed to create or sustain. And so Hayek's utopia can't actually be something that human, that real human beings implement in this world, not in this world, at
0: least. Well, in fact, you do say that material wealth remains criminally unevenly distributed and it certainly isn't making the United States happy.
1: I mean, I live in a house that has quintupled in value since I bought it. I couldn't afford it today. You know, it's a nice house. It's 125 years old. It has nice big redwood beam bones and so forth, but half a mile away from here, there's a man living in a box that, as I said, we've solved, largely solved the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie, but the problem of distributing it and utilizing it continues to absolutely flummox, that there are still 500 million people in the world who are as poor as our pre-industrial ancestors were, um, that right now killer robots stalk the skies above Ukraine and Syria. as you know- no, as all of you on the other side of the Pacific know, the monsoon this year appears to be 300 miles south of where it normally ought to be, which means Pakistan is underwater and the Yangtze is five meters low relative to its normal course. And there are three billion people who depend on the monsoon being in the right place at the right time with the right amount of water in order to live their normal lives.
0: Look, maybe I'll make that my final question because about what you foresee in the decades ahead because one of the interesting uh, commentaries on your book comes from the um, British economist now based in America, Adam Tooze, who actually talks about the fact that, uh, in a way, the American laboratories... Uh, stepped aside from their very good climate research that they were conducting and really leading the world in typical fashion in the 90s and, and early noughties. And then politics entered the field, he thinks, and they stepped away, leaving others to step into that vacuum, which which is an interesting observation, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember back in 1993 when I was working for the Clinton administration. You know, we had 57 Democratic senators of the 43 Republicans. 15 had made reputations as environmentalists in the past. Um, That really ought to have given us 72 votes out of 100 for what Al Gore had then proposed, the BTU tax, a way to incentivize the creation of a renewables industry, and to start the shift away from carbon polluting and emitting energy. We couldn't get a single Republican to vote with us. Um, we lost seven Democrats, some um, six of whom work more or less in hiding. The one who gets all the blame is Senator Dave Boren of Oklahoma because he was out in front with his opposition. And so it's been 30 years, and the United States has finally, you know, Joe Biden finally, but still only with 50 votes in the Senate, plus Kamala Harris to break the tie, um, got a serious policy of subsidies and incentives for accelerating the shift to renewables in the United States past, you know, this past year. Um, You want to see political dysfunction, you know, a massive failure to utilize air wealth properly for human betterment. And... You know, that's, I would say Adam Tooze is very much right in saying that that's example number one of our collective failure to properly utilize our wealth. One result of which is that the typhoon, Hurricane Ian, now hitting Tampa um, and Orlando tonight is almost a Category 5, and in a world in which we started moving toward renewables 30 years earlier would probably have only been a Category
0: 3. Very interesting. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm delighted to have talked to you.
1: Thank
0: you. Brad DeLong, the author of Slouching Towards Utopia. It's a John Murray publishing publication um, distributed in Australia. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.